you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I'm obviously falling in line with the network's Disney nature by beginning two consecutive shows with songs from Disney movies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Ninkle, and my job on the show, as it's always been, is to cover the Green Lantern comics, starting with, of course, cover date June 1990, and ending with cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner being forefront today, as he's going to be appearing in... Well, not both of our issues, but the first one, which is, of course, Green Lantern number 140. As you know from the events of the Circle of Fire storyline, Kyle created some ring construct characters that he didn't even know about. In fact, some that were incredibly powerful, and now it seems that he's not even having to charge his ring to maintain his Green Lantern powers. What's going on with this? Is this a sign of something wonky going on with Green Lantern? Well, Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern, is pretty keen to find out. Unfortunately, he's not keen to find out about Kyle banging his daughter, but that's the less said about that, the better. Plus, we're going to be looking at a secondary book this time out, another Elseworld story, I guess. At this time, rather than it being set in ancient Arabia, it's going to be set in ancient China, as we're going to be taking a look at Green Lantern Dragon which tells the tale of the first Green Lantern on Earth. If you forget that Yalan Gur character from issue 13 of Green Lantern that Gerard Jones wrote and drawn by Martin O'Dell, it's an interesting story written by Doug Minch and drawn by Paul Glacey, and it features, a, like I said, a Green Lantern who happened to be an Asian monk. We'll see how that all works out. Plus, we'll be taking a look at the ads in the book, as well as your emails, as soon as I get playing some promos for some podcasts that I hope you guys will listen to. So, as usual, after this podcast promo break, we'll be back with our coverage of Green Lantern number 140. With all the strength of a raging fire, mysterious as the dark side of the moon. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. 
Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the 2 True Freaks Network. Duh. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com And we are back. But before we get into coverage of Green Lantern number 140, I'm going to do some coverage of the letters that you guys have written in to me. That's the email address. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and an email segment for the show wouldn't be an email segment for the show if we didn't have an email from my good friend, the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. He's got one here that's entitled More Annuals and Some Secret Files. And he starts out with, Hi, Sean. I got to read some very good and very bad issues recently, and I thought I'd pass along my notes. First, Green Lantern Annual number 5. This was an awesome issue. I love both stories. The first story by Chuck Dixon about Ta and his socialist homeworld is fantastic. I agree with you that the idea that the individual can accomplish more when personally motivated is something that I subscribe to also. As you know, I live in Canada, which is a quote-unquote socialist country, but we don't live the way that zealous bureaucracy dictates everything they do. Our government tries to hold our hand through many things the same way USA's government does too. Canada is best known for its socialized health care, but I'm not going to get into the good and bad of it on your show. It's funny how you reference the movie Mac and Me for the character, because Ta, of the character Ta, because I remember seeing it when I was a kid. That was a strange movie. Yeah, it was... E.T. with McDonald's, that's basically what I remember of it. Tried to block it from my memory. He continued saying, you mentioned that it wasn't like... You mentioned you don't like how Ta said, well, that sucks on page 12, but I actually did like it. It was a great hell yeah moment for the story, for, in the story for Ta, before changing into a Green Lantern. I also liked how Ta was casually walking around his town while mayhem and death was happening all around him. The second story was excellent, too. Perdue, the mentally insane chicken man, reminds me a bit of Nort. Uh, that may be why I enjoyed the story so much. I looked up Perdue's character online, and it looks like he appears in 19 issues. Really? Is this correct? A great twist end to, uh, a great test twist end too when he returns to the Insane Asylum. Overall, this was a great annual. Yeah, Annual Five was a great one. Chuck Dixon, and I can't remember who wrote the uh, one with Perdue, the uh, 
the Green Lantern chicken one, but that was another good story. Um, yeah, the the Legends of the Dead Earth. I don't know how well remembered overall it was, but that issue, that annual was actually a pretty good one in my opinion. Green Lantern Annual number six, Scott continues. This was an excellent story for the Pulp Heroes crossover. The artwork by Jeff Johnson was great too. I found it odd that Kyle basically caused the warrior at the beginning of the story to die in the lava, and he basically shows no remorse at all because he has got a hot girl in front of him now. Well, wouldn't you? There you go. You missed a very graphic image of Kyle on page 22 with his legs spread wide apart with the small loincloth burial he covering his private, so I'm pretty certain I blocked that out of my memory. I can guarantee that. It was definitely for the ladies. That's probably why I blocked it out of my memory. Is Kyle technically cheating on Jenny by sleeping with Saria? Uh, it's comics, so no. Sure, let's go with that. I guess he had no idea at the time whether he would make it back to Jenny at all, so I guess knocking boots... Well, I don't know if he knocked boots with Saria in the meantime. Uh, maybe. On page 50, Kyle's a tease by telling Saria that he'll be back someday for her when he fully knows that he'd rather be with Jenny and he's never coming back. Way to leave a girl hanging for the rest of her life, a-hole. Overall, this was a great annual. Uh, you know, she, she's in a piece of art. I'm certain she'll find, you know, since the artist is there, you know, she can draw him another hunky guy that she can get all attached to. There you go. Green Lantern Annual number 70 continues. Wow, this is definitely a mini Blackest Night condensed into a single issue. Sometimes, maybe good things there. I hope writer Steve Vance received some royalty money for it. Overall, this was a decent issue, and I enjoyed reading it. I can't believe Adara is back, known famously for taking her life immediately after having sex with Kyle. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that wasn't good. Uh, it's too bad she doesn't last as long, but though Kyle brutally shoots a bullet through her stomach on page 31. Maybe we'll see her again in the next Blackest Night story. Uh, please don't tell me there's going to be a new 52 Blackest Night. Uh, I'm, I don't know. Green Annual number 8, though, he goes on. This JLA crossover was absolutely awful. Glad we agree there. I barely got through it, he says. How do you even come up with notes for this? Alcohol was involved, maybe? I can't remember. It's all a blur. I tried to, but I have no notes for this. I've read some recent Green Lantern stuff written by Keith Giffen, Threshold and Larfleys. Oh, Threshold? I've heard that was excellent. They they just rave about it over at the Lantern cast. And I can only say, say I am absolutely not a fan of his writing. Is there anything else you could recommend that would change my mind? I've never been so agitated reading a comic before. Pass. Uh, I like the stuff, the early stuff that Keith Giffen, Keith Giffen did with... Uh, um, the JLI, you know, after the uh, Crisis reboot. Um, his stuff with Ambush Bug, the four-issue mini with Ambush Bug, was kind of amusing, very self-referential and tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and I've heard a lot of good stuff about his work on The Legion, although I don't think he was a writer on that. I think it was more Paul Levitz was writing it and Giffen was doing the art. But, uh, yeah, it, Giffen is one of those people who kind of can rub people the wrong way and... I don't think this was a... The jail ape concept was just a bad concept. Anyway, continuing on, he's got a couple of notes about Secret Files and Origins. For number one, he says, I really enjoyed this. It's very interesting that Ganthet originally offered the ring to Guy before giving it to Kyle. Has this ever been referenced in later issues, or has it been swept under the rug? I think the latter. Finally, the mystery of the painting gets solved at the end of the first story. 
For the longest time, I couldn't figure out how all those Green Lanterns got together for this picture, but now that I know it was drawn by Rainer. Now I can sleep at night. Well, I'm sorry that was keeping you up. That's You don't need to get too worried about that. I like the visual tour of the Warrior's Bar and the replica, replica Manhunter was nice too. The picture on Jade by on page 47 by Joe Phillips was amazing. Overall, really enjoyed this issue. On to Secret Files and Origins number 2, and this was a decent issue. The opening story, which retells Hal's origin, was pretty good, but I'm not too thrilled with Aaron Rainer being part of Hal's origin either. I have the physical copy of this issue, and I still cannot see who wrote and drew some of these stories because the printing on the title page is almost impossible to read. And the story about Jade's plant powers was weird, and the story about Parallax and the Spectre written by Jeff Johns was okay. Overall, this was a pretty decent issue, but I'm not nearly as good as the first issue. I picked up the third issue, so I'm looking forward to covering that one in the future. Sean, you mentioned that you have a new podcast called Parallel Lines, and I'll definitely be checking it out soon. I just picked up the first trade paperback, and I'm looking forward to it. Have a great week, Scott. Well, Scott, I hope you're enjoying the Parallel Lines podcast. By the time this comes out, we should be on our way into... Uh, we should probably be covering stuff from the uh, Season 2, or I guess the uh, second run of the Tangent books. Uh, the first one I think we're going to be covering is the Batman book, which was an interesting read. We already got the one recorded, and it should be coming out by the time this one comes out. We may even have the uh, next one after that, which is going to be the Superman story. And surprisingly enough, Michael is going to be covering the uh, Batman the Superman stories over at Tangent. So uh, that, that makes sense. But thanks, Scott, for writing in. Really appreciate it. Our next letter comes from Michael Stanley, and he's the host of the Invincible Iron Man cast, or the Invincible Iron cast, I think it's called. Uh, it's covering the, well, essentially the Iron Man comics from... I think, what, Tales to Astonish? Is it Tales to Astonish? I'm horrible with Marvel, but it's the Invincible Iron Cast. I'm not sure if it's, certain if it's on iTunes, but I had a promo for it, I think, last week. Definitely go check it out. It's a fun, if you like Radio Free Asgard, uh, Mike is covering the stories sort of in the same way that Tom Harris is, and he's reading through it and doing voices, and he's covering the original Iron Man stuff. It's really fun. Go check out that podcast. Anyway, he writes the story in Feedback, the title of the email. He says, I recently found your podcast, and I've been really enjoying it. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. I'm still fairly early in going through the episodes, but since I can listen to them on my iPhone at work, I'm getting through them pretty quickly. To be honest, I was never really a big fan of Guy Carter. Well, very few people are. His personality always rubbed me the wrong way. I think that's why I was enjoying a Guy and his Nord storyline. Seeing Guy suffer was rather amusing. However, as I'm much uh, as much as I kind of hate to admit it, your series has started to make me like him. Well, that's was never a, 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 the intention. It was just basically to say why I like him. But if in some way it you know got you into at least tolerating him, then I guess mission accomplished. Sure, why not? Maybe I shouldn't use that. That's kind of got negative connotations. Anyhow, back to the email. He says, also, I'm glad to see that you just added a new promo for your show. I was looking for some new promos to use on my own comic podcast, and I will definitely using your new one for my next episode. Thanks for all your hard work on the show, Mike Staley. Well, thank you, Mike, and I definitely recommend you going to check out the Invincible Ironcast, and it can be found at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. Go check it out. Really fun show. Um, right now, he's just, I think, like five or six issues in to the run on uh, Tales to Astonish. 
No, it's not Tales of Nostalgia. It's Tales of Suspense with Iron Man. It's been good stuff. But thank you again, Mike, for writing in. We've got one more email from Scott Davis, and we'll call the day. This one is about the 80-page Giants. He writes in saying, Hi, Sean. I finished the 80-page Giants, and I thought I'd pass along my thoughts. Number one, with 80-page Giant number one, I agree with you and Thomas that this issue is definitely an inventory dump for leftover stories. It was hilarious when you guys were talking about Kilowog's severed head and the glass case in Warrior's Bar. Oh, yeah, that was kind of awkward. Yeah, don't want to look at that there. The story about Harlequin and Alan Scott was pretty good, and the picture of Harlequin on page 9 is great, but the picture of the older Gilf holding a young Alan Scott on page 18 was pretty creepy. Yeah, well, I guess age shows uh, no barriers when you're wanting to get it on, I guess. Yeah. John Stewart's slavery story was weak. The Bo Smith story about Guy was pretty good, and the inking and coloring was great. I agree it would have been better if it was Guy as warrior in the story. The story about the robot filled with worms was definitely a forgettable story. Oh, <laughs> yes, it was. Oh, then the story about Kyle, written by Ben Brabe, wasn't very good either. And According to Thomas, many stories that were written by Ben Rabe about Kyle might not be all that good anyway. There you go. Hopefully the stories by Rabe, the stories Rabe writes later in the series are better. Thomas DJ tells me to look out for them. The art was very bad in the story, too, except for the mom on page 56. I've been staring at the end for about 30 minutes, and I still can't figure out why the bully at the end is getting beaten up by his friends after Kyle trips him. What the heck's going on there? Can you explain? No, I can't. The Nord story was pretty weak, too. It was funny that Alan was joking about Nord licking his own balls. Oh, oh not why? On page 59, I think it was actually pretty... Je oh, he was not jealous, Scott. Oh, goodness sakes. I try and keep this a classy show. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm sorry to hear that you won't be covering collateral damage. Yeah, because that one... Yeah, that, that well, because it falls out of my purvey. It's past 2004, so I can't cover it. Sorry. It would be pretty entertaining to listen to you talk about it. You and Tom did a great job throughout this issue. 80 Page Giant number two. First of all, this was a really cool episode, having all the special guests to cover different stories on the issue. It was excellent. The Aquaman story was very interesting, and too bad it was only 11 pages long. I would have liked to have seen more than the Aquaman, more of the Aquaman Kyle team up. The Barda story about saving the kids' artwork was great, and it's funny that Kyle was more worried about saving the art instead of the people. I actually really liked the Dead Man story. A former professor lying to Kyle about dealing drugs and then later dying in his arms is awesome. We need more stories like that, okay? And then he says, as much as I like Chuck Dixon, the guy's story about Warrior's Bar getting destroyed by a villain, yet again, was pretty weak. Mm, okay. See, I enjoyed it. I think Chuck Dixon was just having a bit of fun with that. But you know, we can we can agree to disagree. Everyone has their own taste, and I'm completely fine with that. Getting back to the email, Hector Hammond's story was pretty good, but I agree with you that it gets taken out pretty easily for being punted by a ring construct boot and then shot out of a cannon. I didn't enjoy the Plastic Man story at all. Oh, that's uh, again, agree to disagree. Everyone has a different sense of humor, and Plastic Man is on the opposite spectrum of mine. I like the last story about Zatanna. I know nothing about her character, but it makes me want to see more of her. And you can take that however you want of seeing more of her. Overall, he says, this was a pretty good issue. 
Eddie Page Giant number three, however, he said this was an awesome issue about the forgotten story of the Guardians War with Apocalypse. I really enjoyed the whole story. The death on page 23 with the Green Lantern bug falling apart on the inside of the building was brutal. The artwork throughout the issue by the different artists was very well done. It's interesting that Kyle isn't the only Green Lantern now that we know Raker Cargot was hiding out on Apocalypse. Wow, I didn't catch either the transfer of the ring from the rock creature to Raker on page 59 either. The ending with the battery being in Raker's head was hilarious. Your delivery on these synopses is hilarious. Well, thank you. I, I occasionally get a little bit of humor in there. You mentioned that you think that was Rock Creature's battery, but maybe it was the Manhunter's battery from the first chapter. I may have to go and re-look at that, you know, see if that might be the actual case. Overall, he says this was a great story. Thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. Well, again, Scott, thank you for writing in. It's always great getting emails from you. It's always great getting emails from all you folks. Thank you for writing in. Like I said, email section is one of my favorite ones to read, and I do so miss being able to read your emails when I've got guest hosts on, but it just seems kind of more self-indulgent than normal to read emails when I actually need to be talking with one of the guests. Though. So thank you, everyone, for writing in, and thank you guys for listening. I really, really appreciate it. But enough of me praising you guys. It's time to start praising the comics with Green Lantern number 140. Green Lantern number 140 was covered in September 2001 and released on July 4, 2001. Happy Independence Day for everyone in America. Covered price was 225 US and 375 in Canada, and the title was Alpha Male Bonding. The writer was Judd Winnick, the penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Rich Faber, letterer was Chrissy Leopolis, the colorist Bruce Bowman, associate editor Nashe Castro, different one, and the editor again was Bob Shrek. Asking how long, which is rather a personal question, Alan Scott prods Green Lantern Kyle Rayner on why he was called to meet with him at Radio's coffee shop. Kyle relates that with the creation of Oblivion and the different lanterns, he expected that he would have fused up a lot of the ring's energy. But for some unexplained reason, he hasn't had to recharge in almost nine months. Alan surmises that maybe Kyle could have developed a symbiotic relationship where he doesn't have to charge the ring or even that he might be charging it in his sleep. Kyle mentions he might test that theory by having Jenny make sure he isn't sleep charging whenever she stays over, which leads to some awkwardness. However, since he's more concerned with Kyle's ring than his libido, Alan asks if anything else has changed. Kyle re- prepares to respond but is interrupted by a foxy girl in the opposite booth who praises Kyle for his comic strip and feast and flirts with Alan as she leaves. Getting back to the conversation, Cal tells Alan that the girl was a construct that he created, one that looked completely real, right down to the freckles on her body. Hoping that this isn't some outside force affecting Kyle, Alan tells him to be leery of what's going on when he ring slings. But conversations have to be put on hold as Kyle is set to bet Jenny and Terry at his 17th birthday party, and Alan is more than welcome to come along. Entering the boy dance party at the Gay and Lesbian Youth Center, Kyle and Alan meet up with Jenny and Terry for conversation and punch and pie. Terry tells Kyle that he's really happy with his new friends that he's met up with, and now he's feeling more secure about himself. Kyle hands him his birthday gift, which Terry already knew about since he had been scouring Kyle's apartment for it, as well as Kyle's porn stash. 
To add to the awkwardness, Alan Nat tells Jenny and Kyle that he's going to head home. Putty wants to meet with Kyle tomorrow for a good old-fashioned butt whooping. The next day, in a remote area of upstate New York, the two Green Lanterns meet to test out Kyle's newfangled abilities. Kyle suggests the creation of a boat full of bunkies on typewriters working on the Great American novel, and Alan suggests some consequences. Copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights deserved in the form of a giant ring construct boxing glove to the kisser. Realizing that a sparring match is what's in order, the Elder and Junior Lantern trade blows, eventually coming to the conclusion that Kyle has obtained a better control of the ring than he ever had. Lesson over, the two head back home with the promise of another round of this later next week. This was a decent filler issue that expands upon what we got last issue with Cal's constructs becoming more and more distinct. Whitaker has had a different take on Alan than Ron Mars did, making him a bit more adversarial to Kyle than fatherly. There's still respect between the two of them, but now it's peppered with the more hip dialogue that one would expect from Judd Winning. The art in the book is still pretty good, with a few things looking a bit off. However, I do have to mention that this is the last issue that Daryl Banks will be drawing for the Green Lantern title. He would come back in 2011 to pencil the title Green Lantern Retroactive, the 1990 story. But sadly, this is his last proper issue on the book, which is kind of disappointing. Overall, Daryl Banks was the artist who iconically defined Kyle Rayner in the 90s, and now with the 2000s, he's moving on to other things. Uh... Basically, Green Lantern was the the thing that I think most people know him for, and to be honest, I think overall he's had a really good run on it. Yes, I've had criticisms with some of his art uh, during the time when Terry Austin was inking him, but overall, the initial bout of him establishing Kyle in those first few issues was just amazing, and it's going to be sad to see him go, but... It'll be interesting to see what Dale Eaglesham, who I've enjoyed on the Sinestro title, does with taking the character. Except for that new Jim Lee-inspired costume, which might just make me want to gouge my eyes out. But rather than focus on that, let's focus on some of the little bits of this comic. Of course, we'll start with the cover, and the cover is kind of generic, really. The blue sky background really helps the lanterns pop off the page, as it's a nice distinction between them and their emerald energy, but as for the characters, their poses look just kind of bland, and they're not really doing any constructs per se, so the energy coming off the lanterns is just, again, kind of bland and uninteresting. It's not a bad cover, but aside from the idea that Kyle and Alan are going to be fighting, which... I guess would be a draw for some people for the book, but they're not adversaries in any way, so why is this happening? So, not the best cover around, I'll just leave it at that. Page one, I know I kind of complained about it, and I know Shag was kind of disappointed about it too, but the events of Circle of Fire do eventually come to fruition here, and they do have an impact on the current title. But 
Kyle not having to recharge his ring for nine months, that's quite a big change, even from the normal removal of the 24-hour cycle thing. So obviously something is leading up to something big, and I know we're supposed to be getting to the Power of Ion storyline, so I'm assuming this is what we're going to be doing. But it's interesting to hear that Kyle hasn't had to recharge for nine months. Wow. Page two, panels two through four. This is kind of a bit of good artwork here. It's just these three little panels where it's looking down upon Kyle and Alan as Kyle essentially tells an incredibly powerful ring-wielding and sometimes very disapproving father that he's tapping that with his daughter. Yeah, uh, the the middle panel where Kyle's got this awkward face where he realized what he was just said or what he had just said is is really good and uh, it's it's well played out here. However, there is a bit of wonkiness in the fourth panel here where Alan's head looks like it's not quite connected properly to his neck as he's turned to look sort of skyward and it's just odd. Then moving on to page three, we see an example of Kyle's constructs as he creates this very attractive, very, I guess, what would be 2000s, you know, punk girl. She's got an arm tattoo and wearing a half shirt and very skinny jeans and everything. And for the most part, there is no green on her. So you wouldn't recognize her as a construct. So that plays into the fact of what we've been seeing over the past couple of issues of Kyle's constructs looking far too realistic rather than looking like actual constructs. And it probably has played out even further down the line. If I'm recalling, some of Ron Mars's uh, constructs looked like they had actual physicality to them rather than being light or energy constructs. So there you go. Page five is we move into the gay youth center and the encounter with Terry. They've got this splash page of uh, essentially a bunch of the kids dancing at this party. And it's, it's all right. The characters look distinct enough, but the way that some of them are positioned is just really weird. There's this one kid in the middle who looks like he's either jumping up in the air or squatting down on the floor. And because you can't tell where the floor is, it's, really placed awkwardly. Uh, it looks like he's supposed to be behind a couple of people to the right who are in front of a DJ booth, but his knee looks like it's about ready to go over the DJ booth. It's just some weird perspective problems on this. I think it might be the fact that Banks is having to put too many items in here that it just doesn't look quite right. Page six, we get some interesting dialect between Alan and Kyle during this. And I can kind of relate to it. If you've ever been into a loud dance hall or a place where they're playing incredibly loud music, it's hard to carry on a conversation without having to yell at the person right next to you. But the dialogue just, it's different from what Ron Mars is, or Ron Mars has written. It has that distinct, like I've been saying, more hip, more urbane type dialogue that Judd Winnick is obviously used to doing. And it'll take me a bit of time to get used to it because, well, I'm an old man and get off my lawn. But it's it's interesting, it's engaging, but it's a bit of a change from what I'm used to with Kyle. I'm certain I'll get used to it eventually.
pages seven through nine, when it gets a little bit preachy here about acceptance and homosexuality and all this, it's it's not to the point of the preachiness that we got in the previous storyline with the away from home, which was obviously an obvious, obviously an obvious, obviously an analog for what was going on in the Middle East. That one was pretty bad. This is just, it's polite discussion about it. And I don't think anyone is taking themselves seriously, especially Terry. He's come to accept it and he's actually having fun with it. It's not a big burden for him to be gay, especially around these people who are accepting of who he is. So it's it's a bit preachy, and I guess some people could be offended by it, but I'm not. So there you go. Page 11, we get a really nice uh, full-page splash here with Kyle and Alan getting to face off. And I think Daryl Banks does a really good job here of drawing Alan. He looks a bit older than he did when Daryl Banks drew him earlier, because obviously he's gone through the aging again. But I just love the look of the character, and I, I like Alan's cape. As much as people may gripe on the big Dracula collar and the big purple cape, I think it looks incredibly cool for him. And I always like it, as, as Alan has here, when the character holds his cape in his hand as he's trying to draw it in for into himself, you know, keeping it off the ground or keeping it off the earth or something. It's, it's a cool pose and Banks does a good job here. But then after that pages 12 through 21, it's just a big extended fight scene with more of Judd Winnick's snappy dialogue in it. There are some standout shots such as Kyle creating a giant mix of the characters of the Shugs. If you remember those from the early Green Lantern issue, the uh, sort of, fire lava creatures that shot projectiles out of their heads that uh, Hal, Guy, and John fought in the uh, early issues of Green Lantern. Looks kind of like a mix of them and Godzilla has sort of Godzilla face. Plus there is also uh, the idea that Alan can create denser constructs that he can use gravity and gra gravitational fields to uh, try and weigh down Kyle. So that's an interesting concept there. But other than that, that's really all I have in the issue. It's it's not bad. It does answer some of the questions of what's been going on with Kyle's... Well, it doesn't really answer them, but it progresses, progresses the idea of what's been going on with Kyle's more advanced-looking constructs. So I'm enjoying that. And hopefully I'll be enjoying some of the advertisements they have in the books. Uh, let's go ahead and look at the front inside cover, and this was a good one. I had completely forgotten that this was originally a movie that they premiered on the Cartoon Network, but it's an advertisement for Samurai Jack, the daring new animated series from Cartoon Network. It premiered on, what, uh, 8 10 of 2001, so that's August 10th of 2001. I don't know. I had to count it out, so you maybe heard a pause there. But yeah, it's the... Jendi Tartakovsky, I think is his name, version of Samurai Jack with him holding the katana in his, in his hand. It's, I, I love this cartoon. I didn't get to catch all of it, but everyone that I caught was really good. And Tartakovsky, if I'm pronouncing his name right, is a great storyteller, and this was really a fun show. It's, it's neat to see advertisements for this in the comic couple of pages in we get tom green advertised being right guard extreme sport uh deodorant or antiperspirant 
Because when I think of uh, sweaty people, I think of Tom Green. And maybe it's more like when I think of things that stink, I think of Tom Green. That's that's probably it. Yeah, that's that's it. Then the next page is an ad for a Game Boy Advance game that no one remembers whatsoever called Iridian 3D. I'm not certain if the game is in 3D. I've got to assume it isn't since the 3DS is way away from this. But it looks like a side-scroller where you pilot a ship that shoots things and avoids fireballs. So there you go. And after that, you get an odd ad with up in the upper right-hand corner a small bottle of Sprite with the uh, text piece of bubbly written by it. And underneath it, you have a... uh, cheerleader holding up her pom-poms very high and smiling her cheerleader smile with the caption, Obey Your Thirst. Sprite ads are getting weirder and weirder. The next page is an ad. There's a subscription ad page for GamePro, the world's largest multi-platform gaming magazine, and it's got the Game Boy Advance, the PS2, the original Xbox, and the Nintendo GameCube on here, and you could get GamePro each month to tell you how to defeat the games that you're playing on these systems. So, there you go. And then after that, you get an advertisement for the PlayStation 2 game of Fury Racing, which I guess is a Formula 1 game. 250-mile asphalt scorching action, 250-mile-per-hour asphalt scorching action, plus on-fire turbo boost. Don't think you'd want to be on fire when you are in a car, but... Maybe that's just me. Then after that, oh, here's a neat one. It's an advertisement for Lego Bionicle. And these uh, were the uh, sort of newer, it's kind of like a melding of Kinects plus Legos. These were pretty popular during the uh, early 2000s. And plus, I guess there's a Game Boy-related game that came out of this. So I guess the uh, these aren't, this advertisement isn't specifically for the Lego game, but it's, or for the Lego figures or for the Lego things that you make with Bionicle, but actually for the game. So interesting there. Then after that is an ad for Capri Sun. And unfortunately it doesn't feature the uh, chimp and the three kids traveling down the uh, river in the Amazon. No, it's just an advertisement for the big pouch of strawberry kiwi Capri Sun. Want more? Behold, two thirds more. Pouchicus or it's Pouchus Maximus, which I'm wondering if that's in any way related to Gluteus Maximus or or uh, Incontinentia buttocks. If, you, if you've seen Monty Python and the meaning of life, or not the meaning of life, the life of Brian, you'd know what I'm talking about. Biggest dickus. After that, there's an advertisement for Corn Nuts, which is the ultimate music prize package where you could win things from the Warp Tour, including a very, very archaic Samsung MP3 player, uh, albums by Sugar Ray, Ray J, and Uncle Cracker, or a Warp Tour guitar, uh, Living End Autograph Epiphone Guitar. No idea who Living End is, but it's sponsored by DC and Corn Nuts, so there's two tastes that taste great together. Then after that, we have another video game ad for a game I've never heard of with a character who looks like a giant ripoff of Sonic the Hedgehog, Clonoa 2, Lunatine's Veil, the story of a hero, his adventure, and his ears. So, whatever. 
looks like a, uh, like I said, the character has a very Sonic the Hedgehog type look. We even got the shoes and the big sort of Sonic eyes. and uh. Okay, PlayStation, we get it. Sonic's popular. You'll eventually get the license. And then a, another advertisement for Sprite with the little Sprite bottle in the upper left-hand corner saying not too sweet and a person sitting on their skateboard saying obey your thirst. And I can't tell whether that's, you know, a girl or a guy with long hair. The The image is kind of blurry and it's in black and white, but the, the person has his or her arm kind of scraped up. So be sure to wear elbow pads and knee pads when you're skateboarding, kids. And don't do drugs. Then I guess the Warp Tour was incredibly big because there's an advertisement for the uh, Warped Are There Now, Warped Are They Now, uh, Volume 1 CD, which has a bunch of bands from the Warp Tour. I'm trying to see, uh, looks like Papa Roach, uh, Newfound Glory, Alien Ant Farm, Jurassic 5, and many more. So, yeah, the Warp Tour, that was a thing, wasn't it? Yeah. And then if you didn't have enough ads for Sprite, you've got more ads for corn nuts. It's the same ad of the the shucks of or the uh, cobs of corn in jail with the farmer brown shucks. And, uh, we've seen it all before. Uh, here's a creepy advertisement. It's for uh, Fruit Gushers. It has a uh, very attractive woman in a uh, sort of uh, tank top walking away from someone's house as She's walked out the door and broken the door frame open because her head is a giant watermelon. Yeah, that's what fruit gushers will do to you kids. Don't do drugs. Uh, and then the back inside cover is an advertisement for the Lillard Tobacco Company's Youth Smoking Prevention Program Ultimate Movies Prize Package, where I guess you send in and you can get a Samsung DVD DVD player plus uh, Superman, Batman, or the uh, Batman Beyond, uh, uh, what is it, Return of the Joker story. All if you uh, show that you don't smoke, so interesting. Then the back outside cover is a basketball player who is at Kevin Garnett, I guess, of the Timberwolves. And are the Timberwolves still around? I don't know. But he says you'll bo- grow about 50% taller during your teen years. Want to play? And I guess... Drinking milk uh, causes you to grow so tall you will um, be able to fight the uh, monsters from a Super Sentai show, because that's what Kevin Garnett looks like he's about ready to do. Maybe he'll dunk on them or something. That'd be cool. But one of the other things I kind of wanted to cover in this is the letters column, because the letters column for this issue has some letters in it relating to issue 137 where young Terry finally came out as gay. They only print four letters in here, but they do say that they were sort of flooded with a deluge of uh, letters, some saying very positive things and some saying, well, not really negative things, but how they disliked the story being co-opted. Uh, most of the letters, they, they went 50-50 with the letters here, uh, coming from people who felt that it was great that someone was telling a story about a competent gay character and not being a stereotype to others saying that they really didn't want to see this kind of thing in their comic. I'm impressed that DC printed all these, or at least printed these ones. I'm certain they probably had ones that might have been more, let's just say more internet 
type, um, just basically without tact. I'm certainly probably got some like that, but thankfully the ones that they printed, even the ones that are negative about having Terry come out as gay in the book were at least polite about that saying why they didn't enjoy it. So a credit to the DC for publishing these and for Winnick being able to write this story. So that's interesting, but that's it for the comic. Let's go ahead and put it down as I'm doing right there. And we'll go ahead and move on to our next comic. After I take this commercial break for a couple of podcasts, you should be listening to. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com, and we'll see you there. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. Man of Tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. Up. And away. Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman featuring your two favorite heroes and one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And we're back to get into the last story of this issue, episode, issue-sode. That's right. It's Green Lantern, Dragon Lord, number one. This one had a cover date of 2001, released on April 18th of 2001, with a cover price of $4.95 U.S. and $8.25 in Canada. Prestige formats run higher. The title was Book One, The Glory of Emerald. The writer was Doug Bench. The penciler was Paul Glacey, inker Joseph Rubenstein, letterer Bob Lappin, colorist James Sinclair, separations were by Digital Chameleon, and the editors were Mike Carlin and Andy Helfer. In 660 AD, at the last temple of the Dragon Lords, impetuous student Zhong Li approaches his master with questions about personal ambition. 
Being a wizened Asian stereotype, the master answers Zhang's questions with more questions, telling him that balance between one's personal desires and altruism is the way to become a true dragon lord. Meanwhile, in the Emperor's harem within the palace of the Forbidden City, one of the Emperor's concubines, Jade Moon, makes an attempt to escape with her young son in tow. Back at the temple, Zhang Li, along with his master, meditates on the ideals of peace and harmony in order to bring strength to the mystical dragon lords, the once protectors of the realm, while at the palace, Jade Moon scales down the walls with her son clinging to her back. The escapers raise the ire of General Asian Nick Fury, I, I mean Shan, who sends the Imperial Guard to track down the fugitive Asian down. As Jade Moon hides in the nearby village, Zhang Li ruminates on what his path should be as a dragon lord. Eventually, Jade Moon is exhausted from the running and carrying of her son. Knowing that the only way to save him is for them to split up, Jade Moon hugs her son and tells him to stay far away from the palace as she picks up a rock and hurls it at her pursuers, giving her son time to get away. Fortunately, Jade Moon runs into the temple of the dragon lords, interrupting Gong Li's meditation and demanding sanctuary for herself. Moved by her pleas, Zhang says that he will save her, but just then the Imperial Guards show up and prepare to take back the Emperor's concubine. However, the Master has had enough of these goons sh** and tells them that GTFO, a request that is met with respectful departure and a sincere apology for trespassing. Nah, Shan takes his sword and rams it into the master's chest, and then goes all governor-style and tells his men to kill them all. Luckily, after the slaughter, Zhang is able to make it out of the carnage, and able to remember the call to save Jade Moon from the Emperor's clutches. Over at the palace, the Asian Emperor Fat Bastard is dressing Shan down for not making sure that Jade Moon was present to quote-unquote warm his bed, or penis as it's implied, as well as losing Jade Moon's child. Concerned that the illegitimate child would eventually lay claim to the throne, Fatty Fukushima tells Shen to find the kid and kill him where he stands, which, to no one's surprise, upsets Jade Moon. Leaving the smoldering temple, Zhongli heads to the local town, only to witness the people living within it suffer under the oppressive rule of the Emperor. After getting a dressing down from villager about the isolationist ideals of the Dragon Lords, Zhang is approached by the son of Jade Moon, who asks him for some food to eat. Telling the boy that he cannot help him, Zhang walks away, hoping to understand all the evil that went on outside of his secluded monastery. Out in space, because this is a Green Lantern comic, a saucer-like craft approaches the technology-free planet and begins to search for a suitable candidate with its emerald beams of light. Eventually, it comes across a napping Zhang Li, and the alien within delivers a Green Lantern ring, power battery, and instruction on how to use it to the Mandarin monk. After a bit of experimentation on how to use the ring, Zhang Li attracts a number of villagers who are stunned by his magical ways. However, Zhang attempts to remain humble like his master taught him, but the ring keeps elevating him above the villagers, prompting him to head off to think about his newfound power. Resting once again, Zhang sees a battery construct version of Jade Moon, who begs him to set aside his vow of selflessness and become a hero. Still uncertain of what to do, with his newly discovered power, Zhang heads to the local village for the night. The next day in the Han village, Zhang encounters the Emperor's men seizing the people's food supplies for their master. 
Finally, realizing that the Emperor is evil, Zhang Li delivers some consequences, copyright Allen and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, to the thugs, knocking them out and returning the food to the masses. This leads to a string of helpful heroism, including the caging of some would-be rapist, return of some stolen gold, and general ass-kickery of the Emperor's men. Of course, this wins praise from all of the oppressed, but Zhang Li is still conflicted as his, in his role as a hero. Sitting on a cliff's edge, he witnesses the images of his master and Jade Moon debating upon whether using the power of the ring is a selfish act or a responsible one. In the end, Zhang Li decides that he must do what is right for the good of the people, without the power of the ring, to aid him in this quest. Again, this was another decent Elseworlds story with some really good art from Paul Galassi. So far, these two Elseworlds stories that I've covered back-to-back here have been, you know, far better than a lot of the ancillary stuff that I've done. Uh, The book was divided into 14 chapters, and that did give the story a bit of a disjointed feel. I tried to incorporate them all, but they seem to, each chapter, every three or four pages, like I said, go into a new chapter, and... Maybe that's just a trope of the Asian style of storytelling. Not really certain. Uh, Zhang Li is an interesting character who seems to grow rather quickly after the murder of his fellow dragon lords, as at the beginning of the entire book he was rather self-interested. So it's neat to see this character who, at the beginning, much like some other Green Lanterns that we tend to know in this podcast, Kyle basically, was initially kind of self-centered, But by the end of the story, he's become more altruistic and wanting help out, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the character in the next couple of books. But uh, going throughout the book, we'll start with the cover. It's a nice cover with Zhang Li sitting behind the lantern with his arms outstretched and a very nicely detailed Asian dragon sort of floating in behind him. The the logo for the uh, title, Green Lantern Dragon Lord, is done in a circular logo, it's a, you know, these are one of these things I really don't comment on all that much, but it's a very clever logo design with the uh, lettering being scripted within the circle. It's a, it's a neat design. However, I will say that the positioning of the lantern in front of uh, Zhang Li's crotch uh, is making Li a little uncomfortable. I don't know whether he is planning on recharging with that uh, lantern or recharging with that lantern, if you know what I mean. And I think you do. Pages 2 through 5, the dialogue from Doug Bench here has a lot of sort of circular back and forth between the Master and Zhang Li, trying to let the Master make Zhang Li determine what his purpose as a Dragon Lord is supposed to be. It's it's stereotypical Asian, the sort of Middle, or not Middle Eastern, the sort of Eastern philosophy, but uh, I think Munch does a good, or Mensch does a good job of of writing it much yeah it's it's the character from you know law and order it's it's uh what's his name richard belzer's character from law and order special victim unit writing this that'd be a completely different story page six i'm gonna be a little base here but jade moon she's hot and well it doesn't hurt from the fact that she's getting out sort of naked from a uh tub or something like that in the uh in the concubine house or the place where they keep the concubines at the uh, Imperial Palace. 
Plus, she has a uh, small birthmark over her left breast that's in the shape of a moon, which I'm certain will in some way be important to the story, or might not. And speaking of things that might or might not be important in the story, I've got to assume here on page 13 that Jade Moon's kid plays a big part in it, probably becoming the wise and just emperor at the end. But it's a little difficult to see his mom drop him off in the middle of nowhere. That's something that we'd never see in Western storytelling, but I feel it might be more of a trope of the Eastern and Asian storytelling. Is I've watched a lot of Hayao... Oh, what's his name? Miyazaki films. I can't pronounce his first name. But stuff like Spirited Away and uh, Ponyo and stuff like that. Especially Ponyo. That's a story that deals with two kids, probably younger than six or seven years old, who have a pretty dangerous yet amazing adventure. Uh, the mother leaves the child at home. And I think it's just more of an idea that Children in Asian society or in Eastern society seem to be not really more respected, but thought that they are more capable of taking care of themselves than we do here in Western society. Maybe that's just, you know, the fact that we tend to coddle our children far too much, but maybe it's the fact that Asian people tend to look on their children as being capable of handling themselves more than people here in the West do. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. Page 18, panel 6, uh, we get General Sean and his uh, men basically taking down all of the members of the uh, Dragon Temple in a uh, pretty brutal battle. And In fact, you know, it kind of does remind me in some way of the uh, prison battle at Walking Dead, but with the uh, governor slash Shen telling them to kill them all. He's not riding in a tank, though, so there's parallel loss there, but there you go. Page 21, we get introduced to the Emperor, and Galassi draws him as a incredibly morbidly obese Asian character. I mean, the uh, the joke is more chins than a Chinese phone book. Uh, this guy's got that number of chins. Yeah, he's, he's not an appealing-looking character. And on page 22, we get even more of the fact that he's not appealing is he decides to slap the living crap out of Jade Moon. So, yeah, they're they're doing a good job of setting him setting this emperor up as a bad person. Pages twenty five through twenty six, we get more dressing down of Zhang Li here, as there's a peasant in the village who's been delivering food to the Dragon Lord Temple for many years, encounters Zhang Li and tells him that. He, he's been oblivious to what's been going on. So in Zhongli's quest to become, I guess, powerful with the monks, he's completely ignored what's been going on in the village around him, along with a lot of the dragon lords. And this is kind of an eye-opening scene to him and sets him on his path of becoming a hero. Page 30, we get an image of the alien who's going to give Zhongli the lantern, and he doesn't look like a typical Green Lantern. He looks, if you remember from the book, uh, Green Lantern, Flash, Faster Friends, the sort of two-part prestige format, he looks kind of like the Alien X in there with a very large green bulbous head, sort of the, uh, with the, it's a mix of the gray plus the uh, 
giant brain aliens from uh, the original Star Trek, The Cage. So, I can't remember what they're called. But uh, I know someone will correct me on that. But then moving on to page 35, we see how Zhongli, in this limited amount of time, I guess after losing his, uh, losing all the members of the Dragonlord Temple, he's become significantly more humble. At the beginning of the book, he was wanting to gain power or gain respect for himself, and now he's totally turned that around and is trying to be more humble. But there's going to be a conflict with his humility and all that, and him having to take on the mantle of being Green Lantern and being a hero, which leads to what's going to happen at the end of the book. And then, of course, going to the end of the book, page 48, it kind of seems a little stupid to go taking on the Emperor without the ring, especially when you've used it prior to this and you know what it can do. I understand the concept of wanting to prove yourself or prove that you can do this without, but I'm thinking this is probably going to be setting up in the next book the idea that he really does need to take advantage of the ring to get things done. I have a feeling that the next book is going to see him kind of slap down for not wanting to use the ring to take on the Emperor. But overall, I'm pretty impressed with this story. Like I said, these prestige format books can be hit and miss. Elseworlds type stuff, which I guess this isn't technically an Elseworlds. This is just an early tale of Green Lantern. Uh, it's it's pretty good. The art by Galassi is good, and Doug Mensch is, is, a, is a competent writer, so I really enjoyed it. Hopefully the next issue of the Dragon Lord storyline will be as interesting as this one, because I'll be covering that next week. Plus I'll also be covering issue 141 of Green Lantern, where Jon Stewart deals with Fatality, who's now in a mental institution, and Kyle realizes that his powers are even more impressive than before. Plus, a new set of villains gets introduced. I don't know who they are, but they have something to do with fire. But not damage but fire. So there you go. We'll be taking a look at that in seven days. I hope you'll all come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guides. Until then, everyone, thanks for listening, and have a great week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. 
but it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Donny Osmond. Yes, Donny Osmond of all people, with I'll Make a Man Out of You, from the Mulan movie. Now, if you'd like to get this movie about a female Asian who portrays herself as a man in order to do something, I haven't seen the movie, but my kids have it, there's probably myriads of ways you can get it. You could go out to the Disney store if you have one locally. You could go buy it at Walmart. But why would you want to do that when you could help out two true freaks by buying it through Amazon.com? If you go to the website, 2TrueFreaks.com, and click on the Amazon banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon, where you could buy Mulan, where you could buy Tarzan, where you could buy a myriad number of the late 90s Disney movies, which, let's face it, weren't quite as good as The Lion King and what came before. Plus, any time that you use the link at Amazon.com from the website 2TrueFreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help out the website. It won't cost you anything extra with your purchase, but uh, Amazon decides to give us a little money for advertising for them. So anytime you want to buy movies about Asian characters and Eddie Murphy, make sure you go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.